And if you haven't already done so, please open up your Bibles to Psalm 3. Responding to adversity. Now last December, my, my niece's husband was driving home from work on his motorcycle. And a car driver that did not see him pulled in front of him and he died. She's young. In her life, obviously very difficult circumstance, she's still working through that, still raw and flesh, uh, fresh for her. But since then, she's had a string of other difficulties. Uh, one of her dogs had a, had a difficult disease that, that just required a lot of maintenance for her to, to pay attention to what he was doing in order to help him through that. Uh, water pipes broke in her house and flooded her house. Her husband's not there to care for all that. And just, he's just missing him in so many ways. So my talking to my sister about all this, she's like, God just needs to give her a break. It's, it's more than she can handle. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like, like there's just one thing after another thing after another thing and you're at your breaking point. Well, you're not alone. Life sometimes is that way. Naomi did. Do you know the name Naomi from the Bible? She was living in Israel in Bethlehem, which actually is called Breadbasket city, really. It's the house of bread. But they had a famine. They had no bread. Nothing to feed their family. So her husband and Naomi and her two sons moved to Moab. Right? Not exactly friendly place, but must have been friendly enough that they could go and work there. Not friendly for Israelites, traditionally. So she goes there and they work, I guess, in the fields to have enough food to feed their family. But then Naomi's husband dies. So her sons marry Moabite women. Perhaps not what Naomi had planned. But those Moabite women were good wives. One of them you know is the name of Ruth. But shortly, sometime after that, okay, both of Naomi's husband, both of Naomi's sons also die. And she's left without husband, without sons to provide for her and protect her, and without even any children. None of those marriages didn't produce any children. And she, she's left in what she considers to be a wasteland. And, and she, she actually thought God had it out for her. Listen to what she, as she tells her two daughter-in-laws to, to return to Moab, not go with her back to Bethlehem. Listen to her painful language. She says, return, my daughters, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is more bitter for me than for you. For the hand of Yahweh has gone forth against me. 
Don't you like that? That the hand of Yahweh is against you. That's how Naomi felt. Naomi had, lo- had lost, she, she thought she had lost everything in Moab. She, she, did, she doesn't know yet that she's gained a daughter-in-law that's better than seven sons. But she doesn't know that yet. And when Naomi returns to Bethlehem, there's such a stir because she's returning home without her husband, without her sons, with a daughter-in-law in tow. The people come to her and, and, and they say this, all of Bethlehem was stirred up and they said, is this Naomi? They could hardly recognize her. Is this really Naomi? You can see the stress had impacted her physical appearance. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara. Mara speaks of bitterness. The name means bitterness. And she says, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but but Yahweh has caused me to return empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Yahweh is answered against me and the Almighty has brought calamity against me. Can you hear her pain? Some of you have been in those circumstances. Some of you know people who have. How should you respond to calamity when one thing piles upon another, piles upon another, piles upon another, and you know God is providential and sovereign over all of these things. None of it's by accident. How will you respond? Will you become bitter and angry like Naomi was initially? Or will you respond like Job, who also lost everything, but still worshipped God? Right? Even in his mourning, he worshipped God and did not sin. Well, we're going to look at a text this morning that's neither involved with Job or Naomi, but deals with the psalmist as he experiences a very great calamity in his life. And through his example, we're going to see that that he provides a, a faith strengthening pattern for us to respond to adversity so that we worship God rightly and are not crushed by, by the trials as it, as it falls upon us. You know, when you've gone through that, you just feel crushed. But God doesn't want you to feel crushed. He doesn't want you to feel crushed. He wants you to respond rightly. So, so how do we do that? That's the, we're going to see a pattern for that in Psalm 3 this morning. Well, let's just read the text together. And then work our way through that. Psalm 3. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Yahweh, how my adversaries have become many. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. 
I was calling to Yahweh with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for Yahweh sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who all around have set themselves against me. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. Now, let's talk about a little bit about the background of this particular psalm. This is the first psalm with what's called a superscription. Something that comes before the actual text that tells us about the hymn, it, about the psalm itself. Right, we see this in, in, in the text, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. That is a superscription. Now, the, the superscription is easy to confuse in your Bibles with the editorial or publisher's title. So as they, as they translate uh, and as they publish the Bible, just like they do with the chapters, you know, if you look at the chapters of the Old Testament, chapters of the New Testament, the publisher's putting a title on a certain section to try to help you have a handhold or a grab on what, what the text is about. That is something that's just put there by the publisher. It might be helpful. It might be um, it, it, it might be accurate, or or it might not be. Hopefully, it's accurate. But the point is, it's it's just there. It's put there by by modern publishers and the editors of of your Bible, by the the, the translators and, and the publishers. But the superscription, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son, and other Psalms like this. That superscription is actually not to be treated in the same way you treat the editorial comment that I just mentioned about the title. And, and in the English Bible, it's easy to confuse those two. That superscription, while might not be inspired, it might not be part of the very original text, it was added to the Hebrew text at a very early stage. So early that it's considered to be very reliable. And in fact, in the Hebrew Bible, if you get a, a Hebrew Bible and open it up, that superscription is actually verse 1. So it's so accurate, they put it as verse 1. So if you're looking at a Hebrew Bible and an English Bible, the Hebrew, the Hebrew Psalms that have a superscription have one more verse than we have because they actually add it there. So it's, it's accurate. It's something we can rely upon. Now, what does a superscription tell us about this psalm? It says, first of all, that it's a psalm of David. It's a psalm of David. Now, the way that the Hebrew is worded, this could mean one of several things. It could mean that it's a psalm of David, meaning that he is the author of the psalm. It could also mean that it's a psalm for David, meaning someone else wrote it for David to use as a, as a hymn or a song. It could actually mean it's a psalm about David uh, by the grammar, but, but not necessarily written by him. Um, but most scholars accept that, that David, that this, the, the wording here is referring to David as the author of this hymn. And, and that particularly makes sense when you read, uh, uh, he was the author of this psalm, that makes sense when you read through it. Notice all of the first-person singular pronouns that are in it. Me, my, I. So 
it gives the impression that David is the one who wrote this. Now, what else does the superscription uh, tell us? It gives us this detail, which wouldn't fit any other author. When he fled from Absalom, his son. When he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, Absalom's revolt is covered for us in detail in 2 Samuel verses, I mean, chapters 15 to 18. Uh, it's a lengthy section. We won't take time to turn there, but we need to understand what's going on there. Absalom's rebellion was the direct consequence of David's sin with Bathsheba. So David seduced Bathsheba, committed adultery with her. She bore, uh, she became pregnant and to cover up his tracks. Then David ended up having his, uh, her husband, Uriah, murdered. Now David didn't directly murder him, but God considered it to be directly murder because he ordered that Uriah be put to the front lines of the battle, so close to the, to the city they were attacking that people, the archers could easily shoot him and hit him. And that was by order of King David. So God, God told David because of that, that, that he was going to face consequences. He faced multiple consequences. But one was that the sword would not depart from his house. And so Absalom's revolt was something that, that, that was a consequence of his own sin. Now, Absalom was the third born son of David. Uh, Absalom's mother was Makkah, the daughter of, of Talmai, the king of Geshur, which is important because that's where Absalom flees to later for a short time. In other words, he was a son of a, of a, like a treaty wife. And that time, uh, different countries gave their kings, would give their daughters to other kings to form a treaty with them. So this is one of those treaty wives. So, Absalom's, uh, Absalom had a beautiful daughter, a beautiful sister named Tamar. And David's firstborn son, Amnon, lusted after Tamar and eventually violated her. Well, this just enraged Absalom, as you can well expect. David heard about the incident and did nothing. Did nothing. So Absalom... That, that just that bitterness begins to grow in his life. He forms a plot to kill Amnon. He invites all his siblings over to his place for a banquet. And he instructs his servants in, during that banquet to rise up and kill Amnon, who really rightfully should be the heir to the throne of David, being the firstborn son of David by David's first wife. He kills Amnon. Knowing that David would be enraged with him, Absalom fled to Geshur. And stayed there for a long time. And, and through a series of events. That the scriptures talk about in that in 2 Samuel. Then, then eventually. David brings Absalom back to Jerusalem. But he doesn't see them. He doesn't see him For years past. And, and finally through some, through some conniving. Um, finally David sees his son after years of not seeing him but doesn't really restore things doesn't really reconcile things so you can imagine what this does in a son it's just the bitterness within absalom is festering absalom is handsome he's strong he's tall and he's conniving he develops a plan where 
he would go with his men through the city and, and he would he would tell people who are coming to the king for advice, for counsel, for judgment. He would say, oh, the king doesn't have time for you. Come to me. I, I have time for you. The king doesn't have time for you. And slowly he won over the hearts of the people of Israel. He turned the people away from David and to himself to the point where finally he was strong enough where he had Abathar, Ahithophel, sorry, Ahithophel to, to anoint him as king over Israel. So David is in Jerusalem as king. But Absalom's revolt becomes so strong that he is pronounced king um, in Hebron. And then David finds out about it. Now keep in mind, you think of David as the mighty warrior, but he's he's getting older. And and David has mighty men around him, but his army isn't around him because you know, the army is really the, the people of Israel. And guess what? They've turned to Absalom. So that doesn't leave David in a very good spot. In fact, we're told that he had about 600 men, which sounds like a lot until you consider that Absalom had over 10,000 on the first day of the revolt. Right? 10,000 against 600, not much of a match. David, David, even David, who was the warrior, figured out the odds and he said, I don't want Jerusalem to be raised uh, to the ground. I don't want the people of Jerusalem to be killed with a sword. And so he left. He left with his people. He left a few of his, his concubines. Right? But he, everybody else left with him that was loyal to him. And so this is David's situation. Uh, David is in a desperate situation. Absalom doesn't just want to be king. He wants to kill his father. That's what he wants to do. And, and Ahithophel actually proposed to Absalom. He says, Absalom, let me take 12,000 men and pursue your father. And we'll so overwhelm them. His plan was that we'll so overwhelm them that the 600 will scatter. They'll just be scared. And we're just going to kill your father. That's all we're going to do. We're not going to kill any of the others. That was his advice. And actually, Ahithophel's advice was very wise. That may very well what had happened. His advice was thwarted later by God's sovereign hand. But, but this is the situation David is in. It's a desperate situation. He doesn't have the upper hand at all. Now, you might think of that and say, well, what does this have to do with me? Right? The adversity that David faced, I, I'm not going to face. Well, you're right. You won't face the same adversity. You're not a king. Um, you, Lord willing, won't have a son trying to kill you. But you will still face adversity. And, and God has given us this passage to help us to see how to respond to adversity. To, to build our faith so that we worship God when trials come. So what's the, what's the first thing we see? And, and we're just going to, just so you know the division of this, we're just going to follow the, the kind of the paragraph uh, formatting in your Bibles, verses 1 to 2, and then verses 3 to 6, and verse, verses 7 to 8. And, and we'll just kind of map this out. So the first thing we see from verses 1 and 2 is, is that we need to bring, you need to bring your adversity to God. Bring your adversity to God. That's the first response that David has. Let's just read that together again. Oh, Yahweh, how my adversaries have become many. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So verses 1 to 2 emphasize the word many. 
I tried to emphasize that as I was reading through it. Many, many, everything. It's all overwhelming. David's head is swirling. All I can, all I can see in every direction are, are people who are against him. The first people against him are David's adversaries. By this time in David's kingship, he had made many adversaries. An adversary is, it's not just like an opponent in a game. It, it, David is saying he has people that want to kill him, not just Absalom. These are people who, like Absalom, were no friends of David. They wanted him dead. Now, you could take a step back and say any, any leader of God's people who, who attempts to be righteous, and David was not sinless by anything. We've already talked about his sin. But anybody that represents God is eventually going to be attacked by those that don't love God. So David had a, a multiplicity of, of, of enemies. I mean, he had kind of allowed the situation with Absalom to develop. That was his fault. But in many of these other, many of the other enemies, that was not his fault. He was a God's representative and they just, they just hated God and wanted him dead. Um, keep in mind that David had brought some of this on his head with Absalom's revolt. He had committed adultery and essentially murdered Uriah. And there were people within Israel that were holding him responsible for this. So they were, they, they were actually having holding him responsible, probably holding him responsible for the, for the murder of Abner. Remember Abner? Abner was the, the great military leader under King Saul. And eventually Abner formed a covenant with David and came over to, to David's side. But he was killed by Joab. He was murdered by Joab. And people probably thought, well, David ordered that. Well, David didn't order that. That was Joab's plan. But the list of enemies could go on and on. They, the enemies of David, kind of like were in the shadows, in the cracks. But Absalom's revolt gave them an opportunity to spring forth. They saw weakness in David, weakness that they wanted to pounce, that would allow them to pounce upon him. So you got all these enemies. That's what he's saying. My adversaries have become many. And, and he adds to that, many are rising up against me. Absalom managed to steal the hearts of the people away. The people of Israel weren't, by and large, were not enemies of David. Absalom stole them away. And in fact, in some cases, he formed his plan and involved them, got them to participate, and they didn't even know what was going on until, oh wow, Absalom just got declared to be king. And so they're put in a position of who do they support? And they ended up supporting and being pulled in uh, to support Absalom. And, and you can see that, that afterwards, when all the revolt is done, and, and David does come back to Jerusalem, he, he doesn't chide the people at all. They, they were misled, but they were many. That, that formed, the, the people formed the bulk of Absalom's army. And then in verse, verse uh, 2, you see, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So there's all sorts of rumors swirling around that God was just finished with David because of David's sin, his murder, his, his adultery, and everything that had happened. People, the people of Israel were saying, I guess, I guess the covenant's done. The Davidic you know, covenant is done with David and we're moving on. Um, we're moving on here with Absalom. That was not the case, uh, but that's what they thought. That's what they were talking about. And, and it's so bad that, that even some people of Israel cursed David when, 
when he was leaving. In 2 Samuel 16, 7, we read how nasty uh, the cursing was of, of a man named Shimei, a, a relative of Saul. Right? So he was no friend of David. You would classify him as probably the adversary sort. Right? But listen to his strong language. He says, get out! Get out, you man of bloodshed, you vile fellow. Imagine talking to a king that way. Yahweh has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And Yahweh has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. You just see that bony, you know, bony finger. He's, he's standing on top of the hill as David's walking in the valley. And to make matters worse, he's not just shouting this stuff. He's throwing rocks at David and at David's men. Right? And, and probably not ones, not, not little pebbles. Uh, I imagine he was throwing larger, larger rocks, larger boulders to try to hurt them. That's, that's what's going on. It's so bad that one of David's soldiers says, you know, why are we listening to this dead dog? You know, mocking him. Right? Let me go up there and take his head off. And, and David says, no. No. He doesn't allow him to do that. Because he thinks that, he, 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 let's see in a moment, he, he thinks that maybe God sent Shimei to do this. David, David doesn't, he just, he's just really down. He's, he's discouraged. You know, you know how David left? Now, all of this drove David into the pits. He left in mourning. He didn't, he didn't leave triumphantly. He didn't leave like a, a bold, proud uh, MacArthur that says, I will return. Um, no, he's, He's mourning. And he's actually barefoot. He's got covering over his head. He's in mourning. He is beaten down. That's how David, the David situation. Now David could have responded and wallowed in self-pity, couldn't he? He had a lot of reasons. He said, well, I, I know I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. I don't deserve all this. I don't deserve this betrayal. I mean, I know I wasn't the best dad, but do I really deserve to be betrayed by my own son? Be hunted by my own son? He, he could have done that. He, he also could have just have given up and said, I surrender. Given up. But David didn't do any of that. He also could have gotten angry at God for allowing such circumstances to come about. But he didn't respond in any of that way. Though, though sad, weak, and mournful, and seemingly alone, statistically, David didn't respond in any of these ways. What did David do? He worshipped. Where do we see that? The very first word that I skipped over, talking about his many enemies. Oh, Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh. David is bringing his situation to God. Now, the name of Yahweh is significant. If, if you use uh, NASB 95 or ESV or something, you're, that it's the word Lord there. But it's the covenant-keeping name of God, Yahweh. Okay? O Lord is, is fine, but, it, but we confuse it with the word like Master. That's not what David is appealing. David is appealing to God, 
by his name. It indicates a personal relationship. And the name of God is, is the name which God gave himself, which shows that he is ever existing. He's the great I am. I am who I am. It's the name he revealed himself uh, to Moses uh, in the Exodus. So this is the name of God. God is ever existing. And God appeals to him with his situation. He brings his situation to him. David also appealed to the name of Yahweh because that name is, is, is the link to the Davidic covenant. Yahweh made a covenant with David and, and David is appealing to that covenant. Although God, uh, through Nathan the prophet, God told David that he was going to suffer many consequences. God never ended the Davidic covenant. God didn't tell David, I'm done with you. Just like I removed Saul, I'm going to remove you as king. He hadn't done that. And David knew that. So David was appealing to Yahweh as his covenant keeping God. David is pouring out his heart to Yahweh. But keep in mind, he's not doing this to inform to inform God. David is bringing his burdens to the Lord as an act of worship, to Yahweh his God as an act of worship. He's casting his burdens upon him. The burdens are too heavy for him to carry. And so he's bringing these to Yahweh his God. He's issuing a lament to God about his terrible life-threatening predicament. This isn't a complaint to God. He's just bringing it to God. And you can follow that example. Whatever, whatever difficulties you are facing. You just talk to God. Say, oh God, these, whether it's adversaries or difficulties, the loss of loved ones, bring these to God and pour them out to Him. That, that He would carry the load that you cannot. So David brought these burdens to God, not again, not as an act, not as a, an act of complaining, but as an act of worship. As we're going to see in, in verse three, David knows that that God is a shield, so he's to his people. Now, one other thing to point out is that David's use of God's covenantal name Yahweh shows a a level of spiritual intimacy. And it's a, here again, it's significant that David uses the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh of God. Yahweh is, is likely the equivalent of how New Testament believers would call out to, to, um, to our Father, Abba Father. That through Christ, we can call out to God as our Abba Father. Well, for David, calling upon the covenant name of God, oh, Yahweh, is like saying, oh, Father, help. And so there's that, that intimacy and there's an emphasis on appealing to, to Yahweh, this intimate relationship with your God. Six times in eight verses, David uses God's name, Yahweh. So that gives us an emphasis of the psalm that, that, that really that David is saying, turn to Yahweh in your trouble. Turn to Yahweh in your trouble. Now, when you find yourself in a difficult situation, bring the situation to Yahweh in prayer. Lay it before Him. He knows everything already, so you're not informing Him of these things. The reason that you're bringing these to Him is because you are demonstrating your dependency upon God. You are telling God, I can't make it through this without your help. 
I need your help. So you're bringing the matter before your Lord. And, and it's the first step to finding peace, even if your circumstances don't change. If you lost a loved one, that's a circumstance you can't change. But that doesn't mean you can't have peace. If you'll pour your heart out to God, right, He will take you. He, he will begin leading you along the road to peace and safety, even in the midst of, of trouble and turmoil. So David relied upon God's covenant with him in order to appeal to him. But we have something even greater. Like your circumstances are likely not as bad as David's. But your resources are much greater than David's. We stand as New Testament believers having the full revelation of God, knowing that in, in the scriptures, but also through faith in Jesus Christ, we have access to the new covenant, to our living Lord, who, who, who lived for us, who died for us, who, was, who rose again for us and ascended on high for us, and even now is preparing a place for us. As we looked at the, uh, as we studied Jude, the end of Jude, this is our, our living God who protects us, he keeps us, he guards us. We know all this. So we have an even greater reason to, to call out to God through all this because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So believers, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, when, when difficulties and trials come, don't collapse under the weight of it. Don't become bitter or angry. And if you find yourself just get reaching a place where you just, you're just exasperated, you feel like I've reached the end of my rope, I, I, can't, I can't go on. It's likely because you're looking horizontally. You're looking at all the many things going on in your life, the, the dog pile that's on top of you, instead of looking to God and taking, taking all your problems to God. So take your problems to God. And, and I, do, I just want to say that uh, and affirm that, that what Scripture says, that we're going to experience lots of trials. There is a false Christianity being proclaimed today that says you're not, as a, if, you're, if you have enough faith, you're not going to have trials. If you just believe God, you're not going to have trials. God wants you happy, wealthy, and wise. And that's just a lie from Satan. And he comes with a tie and a suit and a big smile. Right? So don't believe that. You're going to experience trials. So when you have trouble... Turn to God. Take your trouble to God. Remember that Jesus said you will have trouble but in this world, but he has overcome the world. As a child of God, God will be your helper. He will always be with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Turn to God in your trial. Uh, listening, uh, I like to listen to Don Green. He's a pastor down in Cincinnati. And, and in, in Psalm 3, he says, that speaking about trouble, he says, God's whistling at you. God is using your trial to whistle at you and say, hey, you come to me. I can't whistle out or I would. But God is whistling at you. He's getting your attention and he's saying, hey, you come to me. That's what God's doing. I think that's a good picture to keep in mind. So we don't know everything God accomplishes through trials, but that's one we can count on. He wants to get our attention. He wants to draw us closer to himself. That's an encouragement. But I also want to add a warning here. There are some people who, who think that they're believers and they appear religious, but they're not converted. And when you have troubles or 
or trials. You have just yourself. You might think you have God, but you don't. You don't have any access you don't, to God. You don't have any right to call upon God. You're likely to get just angry at God because you think God, that uh, you think you, God owes you better, that He owes you something, that, that you shouldn't be treated this way. But that's simply not true. See, when unbelievers experience trial, I'm talking about unbelievers, I'm not talking about the pagan unbelievers, I'm talking about the unbelievers that might attend church. People that sit and hear sermons, they, they think that they're saved and religious, and then when they encounter trials, then they, they start to get angry with God because of those trials. And they think that God is, is, um, has their hand against them, and, and eventually if it goes on long enough, they just become bitter and write off God and they walk away. Right? But they were never really, never really gods to begin with. And that's exactly what Satan wants them to do. Satan wants them to give up on God. But keep in mind, if, if, if that's you today, like you, you don't know Christ or you don't even know if you're born again, know that, that Jesus Christ is God. That He died on the cross for sins. All, for all the sins of everyone who would believe in Him. He was buried. And He was raised three days later in newness of life. That He appeared to His, to his disciples, His apostles. And over 500 others that saw him alive. And he, he ascended on high and lives on high now, building his church from heaven. And he is calling to you to today would be the day of your salvation. If you believe in him, even today, even though you've sinned greatly against him, even though you might have been, been uh, religious outwardly, but all that was fake hypocrisy, know that God saves and he will save you today if you will but trust him in faith. You repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Today could be the day of your salvation. And then you have instant access to this God who is always present and ever, ever ready to listen to the, to the difficulties of your life and ready not just to listen, but to help bear those along. This is such an, uh, you know, an important point. Just, just think about that. I, I plead with you, if you don't know Christ, believe in Him today. Why would you turn down a, a resource and a helper like the Lord God, like Jesus Christ? Don't do that. Now, when David talks about his many enemies, he ends with this little phrase, Selah. That we, we really don't know exactly what Selah means. It could be musical notation for an interlude, a musical interlude, because uh, the word psalm actually it means a, a song accompanied by, by a musical instrument. So well, if we don't have the music, God chose not to inspire the notation. He inspired the words of the psalm, not the music. Um, it's something of an interlude. It could mean pause and reflect, which is kind of how I read it that way. Whatever, it, 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 basically, whether it's done as musical notation for an interlude or whether it means pause or effect, either way, you are, you are slowing down to reflect upon what was just said. And that's its intent. So when you see it, don't just skip over it as something meaningless. It, it, it has meaning. Uh, we may not know exactly what it is, but it slows us down and causes us to reflect. And, and here it causes us to reflect upon, upon the fact that David is surrounded by his enemies and the only one he's got is Yahweh. 
so he's taking his troubles to Yahweh. I looked at the clock and I got to speed up. So, the first part of your faith building pattern that David gives us is bring your, your trouble to God. Bring your adversity to your God. Second step, bring your God to your adversity. Look at verses 3 to 6. Bring your God to your adversity. So you're going to turn the things around here, but let me explain what he's doing here. When our problems are massively large in our mind, we don't need to focus on the problems because those are already evident. What we need to do is get a fresh view of God because God is so big and so strong and so mighty that He diminishes the problems, the perspective. He changes your perspective. That's essentially what is going on here in verses 3 to 6. God totally changes David's perspective. He's no longer focused on the many. And he's no longer anxious, full of anxiety about the many. He sees God. Because if God, if it's just you and God, well, you have a majority. No one can, can overthrow that. Let me just read that together. He says, but you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. What is he? What is he doing here? God describes uh, God. Sorry, David describes God as a shield. Remember, David was a warrior. He knows what a shield is. You and I have a vague idea. David had reality. He had been in battle. He knew what a shield did. A shield kept you safe from from those uh, arrows that the archers would would sling at you, or from from javelins or spears. It would protect you. And notice that this this particular shield, he's saying it's a shield about me, around me. So it's not just a frontal shield. God is a 360 shield, right? Ultimate defense. And then he says here, he says, God, he he is in verse three, he says, you're a shield about me, my glory. That's kind of strange, don't you think? Why do you mention glory? It's an attribute of God and his God's glory there was certainly nothing glorious about David's retreat. Think about him. I mean, barefooted, head covered. I mean, he, he even at, a, at at full strength, they had a you know, um, they had some thousands of of men. But compared to the tens of thousands that Absalom had, they were still a small, very small force. So there's nothing glorious. I mean, uh, uh, the Prover- Proverbs thirty says that a that a king's glory is in his army. And the king is never more glorious than when his army is with him. Right? It's not time for David to take glory in his army, is it? They're mighty warriors. I'm not putting them down. They're mighty men. David's mighty men is what they're called. But they were few in number. David was not going to be like taking any glory in them. What is he saying? His glory is in God. So, God is what David is is uh, taking his glory in. Now, this this may be a hard concept for us to understand, but but we'll get it. I think if we think about this analogy, um, suppose just suppose that the Cleveland Browns have a stellar season and they make it to the playoffs and they win the playoffs. And make it to the Super Bowl. 
And then suppose you win tickets to go see the Super Bowl. And suppose that they win. How are you going to react? You're going to be yelling and screaming and jumping up and down. And, and you know, you're going to be saying, you know, we will rock you and all that. And, but you had nothing to do with it. Right? I mean, you cheered them on. You were faithful through the bad seasons. But, you know, really you had nothing to do with that win. But you're, you're doing what? You're taking glory. Your glory is what? The team. And you're like, you feel pumped up. You feel charged. Because your team won. That's exactly what David was feeling. He was looking at God. And he is saying, God is my rock. I will take glory in him as my king. I will shout victoriously in him. He is my glory. That's exactly what David is doing. And, and look what comes next. You would expect this. The one who lifts my head. You know, David left Jerusalem, as I said, with barefooted, his head covered. You could just see it. His head's down. This guy's cursing him and throwing rocks, looking occasionally so he doesn't trip. But he's just dejected. His head's down. But after viewing how big God is, seeing the attributes of God, it's as if God reaches down and lifts David's head. But don't be discouraged anymore. I'm with you. So it, it, it speaks of his demeanor totally changing. And, and David's circumstances would change, but they hadn't changed yet. So his change of demeanor isn't because the circumstances changed any. Not at all. And then look what else he says. He says, not only are you lifting my head, I was calling to Yahweh with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain. Now, that might seem strange to us when he says, I called to you with my voice because we think, or at least I do, um, how else would you call to God but your voice? But the, the reason that the voice is mentioned is because he's talking about a, a loud outcry. It, it, this wasn't a private prayer. This was a loud cry to God for help. He was crying to God. Anybody within earshot would have heard him. And look what he did. God answered. You see that God answered Answered me from his holy mountain. How did God answer? Now again, not by changing the circumstances. Circumstances hadn't changed yet. How did, how did Yahweh answer? By giving David a fresh vision of who he is. Okay? Remember David, the, the scroll of, of the law, all this was being written. The, the Mosaic law, all that would have been kept in Jerusalem. David fled. He didn't have it. He couldn't sit and read a Bible like we have. So the Lord would have had to come and give him a fresh vision. Um, I say fresh, not new, but a reminder. Help him remember all that he had read and what, and to remember what God had promised David. And he answered, look how David answered. He answered me from his holy mountain. Why is that significant? Okay. Again, it's significant because David fled, but God hadn't. David was still on the throne. I mean, God was still on the throne. David wasn't on the throne, but God was on the throne. 
you know, the tabernacle where the where the Holy of Holies existed, that was on that was on Mount Zion, Mount Moriah. Not much of a mountain by our standards, but but a hill. They called it a mountain nonetheless. Right? God is on his holy mount. Right? He's ruling. And so David says that God answered from his throne. From his place of um, where God man- chose to manifest himself. And the change in David is so dramatic that, that let me just back up and say, I don't want to miss the Selah. It says, he answered me from his holy mountain, Selah. Just pause and reflect. Think about that. You called. God answered from his throne. Meditate on that when you have problems. David David's transformation is so complete. He says he, he gives two pictures in verses five and six that are that are really sweet. The first one is I lay down and slept. Right? So when David fled Jerusalem, it was and it, it was late late in the day and evening, and it, it seems like he was involved. This this revolt went on at least there were at least two evenings where David was in jeopardy. David didn't stay up. David slept. What is that? What is a picture of? It's a picture of sweet trust. David realized that he needed sleep to face the battle that was yet ahead. And he realized that God was going to stay awake, so he didn't have to. And it shows a vanquishing of anxiety. You know, when you're anxious, dealing with anxiety, you can't sleep, your mind's racing, you sit and try to sleep, just can't sleep. Mm-hmm. So there's there's something theological about trust in, in those cases when you're facing anxiety that helps you sleep when you trust God. And that, that's what we're seeing here. And he says, I, I lay I lay down and I slept. I woke. Why is that important? Because sometimes when warriors lay down to sleep, they never woke up again because their enemies found them and killed them. Remember how Saul was sleeping one time and David was able to sneak in and uh, David could have killed Saul. Chose not to, wisely. But could have. That, that's how that happens. Right? David knew that if he fell asleep in the wrong circumstances, his men might flee and just leave him there and he could, he could be killed. But he says, I woke for Yahweh sustains me. He wasn't discounting the protection of his, his lawyer, loyal friends, his mighty warriors. Right? But he's saying ultimately it's it's Yahweh that protects me. And he says, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who all around have set themselves against me. What a beautiful picture. This is not like David exaggerating. There, there were literally tens of thousands of soldiers coming to kill David. They knew where he was. And they were to have a battle. So all, all that to say, he's not exaggerating here. This isn't, this isn't a figure of speech. This is literally tens of thousands coming. But the, the beautiful thing is, he says, though they're all around me, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be worried about that. I'm not going to be afraid. It, it kind of gets us back in the picture of verse three. Oh, Yahweh, you are a shield about me. Remember that Yahweh is a shield about me. 360 protection. And David is saying here in, in, in verse six, though there are 10,000 around me, I have God around me, and so I will not be afraid. So that, that's what it means to, to basically bring God to your situation. 
See how big God is. And then when you have brought your, your, your trouble to God and you brought your God to your trouble, then it is appropriate to point to, to really the third step or the third pattern is to bring your uh, to bring your request to God. And, and really, this is where we see uh, David specifically asking the Lord to, to help. In verses 7 and 8. Hmm? He says, Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be upon your people. David is making his request known. And I think it's important to see that David didn't bring this request until really his attitude changed regarding his situation. His perspective changed is a better way to say that. But David prayed for victory over his enemies. He says, arise, O Yahweh. Now that phrase, arise, O Yahweh, is very similar to, to what Moses actually prayed in Numbers 10.35. He says, Rise up, O Yahweh, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. So David is invoking really a, a prayer of Moses here, using a prayer of Moses and say, Arise, O Yahweh, be the mighty divine warrior that your people need you to be. Remember that David, as the covenant king, was to be the channel of blessing for his people. So if the people were to be blessed, it would be it would come through the, the Davidic, the covenantal Davidic king, David himself in this case. So he's praying for God to rise. And he just says, save me, oh my God, save me. Um, he'll go on to, to pray something else. I just, just pause here to think that when we, we pray to God, sometimes you know how to pray so you can pray very specifically. But other times you don't know how to pray. It's okay, just, just pray anyway. And what, what, what do I say? Well, you just say, help me, save me. God knows how to help you. You don't have to give him instructions. It's helpful sometimes to, to pray specifically because then you can see specific ways that God answers those prayers, but sometimes you don't know how to pray. So you just say, oh, Lord, help me. He knows how to help you. Just pray. Now, some of the imagery here that he, that he uh, uses is uh, rather harsh to us. He, he speaks of, of, after he prays for God's help, he prays, he actually kind of using the past tense. God hadn't done anything yet, but he's using the past tense to express confidence that God would do those things. But he says, you have struck all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. In other words, they're defeated. So the the whole issue of of striking the enemies on the cheek. We might think of a slap. David's not thinking of a slap. David thinking is of a hit that breaks the jawbone. You know, when you get struck in, in, in the face so hard that your jawbone is broken, you're out of the fight. You're done. Right? It's a lot of, it's very painful. Uh, the, the, the teeth shattering there. It could either be just of that blow from the jaw, so it's emphasizing the same thing, or David could be envisioning his enemies like wild, vicious animals. And, and God defanging them so that they're no longer vicious and harmful to him. But, but either way, it, it's very graphic language to express 
the, the call, that, like David's prayer, that, that God would defeat his enemies. And he, he looks at, look at verse 8, he's saying salvation belongs to Yahweh. Salvation, help, belongs to Yahweh. Your blessings be upon your people. See, when David was praying for help, save me, he wasn't just thinking about himself. He was the covenantal king of Israel. And so this, this prayer could be interpreted as a, an imprecatory prayer against his enemies. But it's not, it's not like a, a prayer of personal uh, vindication so much as it is a prayer for the Lord to, to vindicate his people and to vindicate his covenant. It's really the Lord's vindication. And, and David is praying for Yahweh to bless your people. So he says, he declares an affirmation, salvation belongs to Yahweh. And in speaking to Yahweh, he says, your blessing be upon your people. And then you see it again, Selah. If you're, if you're going to experience the blessing of God, it's by turning to Him in your trials, not turning away from Him. God is the, is the one who blesses His people. So you see, the psalm teaches us exactly how we need to respond, or at least the pattern of how we're to respond when we encounter different kinds of trials and adversities. We, we need to turn to our Lord and to our God. Um, we need to... to basically take our adversity to our God, right? then bring our great God to that adversity, and then make our request known to God. So, how will you respond to adversity? And you might think, you know, I haven't experienced any of these. Well, just understand that sometimes small trials, well, often small trials, help you, prepare you for things that are larger, larger trials. Like when you go to the gym, you don't go and, like if you're just starting, you don't go and start out with the, heavy, you know, with the heaviest load that the machine can, can actually function under, do you? you? You start with a smaller, lighter load. So I, I mention that to say that even in smaller trials, this pattern is appropriate. You build you build this pattern and you begin you begin uh, making this a habit in your life of, of bringing even a small trial to God, bringing your big God to the small trial and, and making your request known to God. It's, it's a pattern that works and it'll help you. If you do it in small trials, it'll help you respond rightly when bigger trials come. And, and don't worry, you can't manipulate God. So, you know, this isn't, you might be afraid, well, if I do these things, God might give me a big trial. Well, God's going to give you what he wants to give you in his wisdom, his perfect wisdom. You, you can't avoid it. You can't manipulate him. Um, don't, don't think of him in, the, in that regard. Think of him as a loving God who knows what's best. And, and you know what? We grow the most during times of trial. We like the times of peace and, and like, when it's really comfortable, we like those the best. But we don't grow as much as we do during times of trial. And God knows that. He knows what you need. So submit to Him. Look to Him for, for refuge. And when those trials come, look to Him to uh, respond to Him rightly so that you can worship Him, not be bitter and not be crushed by that trial. Let's pray. Our Lord, we do just praise you as our good God.
And just thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you that that you direct us through whatever circumstances we need to go through for your glory, for our good, for our for our sanctification, and sometimes for the good of others, to encourage them through their trials. So that we after we've experienced your comfort that we're able to comfort others with the comfort that we have received from you, the God of all comfort. Oh Lord, I just pray that you would help your people here at Medina Bible Church to respond rightly to trials and adversity when that comes, whatever that might be, whatever form it takes. Lord, to to cast their burdens upon you and and then to see the greatness of the Lord our God that you would be a shield around them and about them, caring for them, that you would lift their head and that you would be their glory. Oh God, just, just help us. And then help us to remember that, that though you control everything, that you are very interested in what's going on in our lives and you want us to bring our requests to you. So help us to do that on a regular basis. And may we see you work powerfully in our lives. For your glory. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.